since today does mark the first day of the work week. Pleased to welcome to the show Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. Kyla, how are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks, as always, for the time. Now, I wanted to start with the issue of, of guns and the new federal legislation that is being imposed. So the federal government began moving ahead with its promise to impose stricter gun laws last week and will implement a voluntary buyback program to purchase new or now prohibited firearms in the coming months. Uh, owners of any of the 1,500 firearm models and their variants that the government reclassified as prohibited last May will have the option of keeping their weapon under strict storage rules or selling it back to Ottawa. Other measures of Bill C-21 include uh, creating safer communities by allowing cities to ban handguns in their region, uh, supporting youth programs to help Canadians avoid criminal behavior, and this one I thought was important, in circumstances of self-harm or gender-based violence, the development of new laws that allow concerned friends or family to apply to the courts for immediate removal of an individual's firearms. Um, I guess, Kyla, overall, when you kind of hear the, the new laws being put into place here, is there anything within that that immediately maybe triggers any concerns? Um, well, I, I do have concerns about cities banning handguns, um, in part because I don't think that leaving that decision to a city uh, is a really clean way to do it legally. Um, right now, you have chief firearms officers of provinces who have, you know, some authority to make rules with respect to the, the issuance of firearms permits. And we have, of course, the federal government who has the ability to make rules regarding uh, what firearms are restricted, what firearms are prohibited, and what firearms are, are allowed. And then adding another layer of government to the decision making process is only going to confuse things. It's also going to make it a lot more difficult for people who are moving cities. If you live in Vancouver and the mayor of Vancouver has said that, you know, they're going to take steps to ban handguns and then you move to a city that hasn't banned handguns or vice versa, you could find yourself in violation of the law without even knowing it. Um, and that's going to raise, I think, a lot of uh, concerns about people being charged for handgun offenses, either municipal offenses or federal offenses, as a result of actions that they took inadvertently without realizing that they were breaking the law. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. That all uh, was on my radar as well. And one of the things I worry about, too, when talking about um, how communities could potentially ban handguns, right, basically uh, going through bylaw to do so, I'm not sure that a bylaw officer is necessarily the right person to be enforcing gun laws. I don't think so either. I think, you know, when you're looking at people who have obtained firearms and have firearms unlawfully, whether they're unlawful firearms or whether they have them and they shouldn't have them, um, you're dealing with people who are often unstable in one way or another, whether it's it's mental illness, whether it's involved in, in drug trafficking or, you know, a criminal network, something like that. And bylaw officers have the least amount of training of any enforcement officers to deal with situations like this. We've seen lots of situations in Canada involving police who are killed um, in situations where people who shouldn't have had guns had them. And so, you know, putting more peace officers at risk by giving them the obligation to enforce these laws, I think, sets people up for disaster. And, and the other issue I have this with this, too, when talking about specifically with bylaw officers, is what happens if they find someone to be in violation? Then they, what, do they confiscate the firearm? And then, then what do they do with them, right? I mean, I, I don't think a bylaw officer should be confiscating anyone's firearms. And then how do you store them? What, do you bring them to City Hall? Like, I don't really understand how this is supposed to work beyond that. 
all of this is going to have to be spelled out very clearly so that bylaw officers, if they're enforcing the law, know what they need to do. And there need to be very clear systems in place in cities that want to ban handguns uh, altogether about how those are to be dealt with if and when they're seized by the officers who are enforcing those laws. I think that that's going to be very difficult to do, both at a municipal level, because the municipality is not necessarily going to think of all of the constitutional issues that arise when it comes to the enforcement of federal legislation surrounding firearms, and not think about the level of training the various officers need to have to deal with these types of situations. Now, owners of any of the 1,500 firearm models and their variants that the government reclassified as prohibited, they do have the option uh, of keeping their weapon under strict storage rules, or they can participate in the buyback program, right, and sell it back to Ottawa. But Public Safety Minister Bill Blair has said that he expects many owners will be inclined to surrender their guns because they have basically been rendered legally useless, saying they can't be shot, they can't be traded, they can't be transported, and they can't uh, be bequeathed. So uh, with all that in mind, I mean, is it possible to just make people participate in the buyback program? Is that something that the government could do? I just don't understand why they wouldn't take the step. If you're going to essentially make these firearms useless, why don't we just completely ban them and not let people have them moving forward? This is a bit of a nod to the complaints that um, some of the more vocal gun owners have about uh, their rights and firearms, that they shouldn't have to spend a lot of money. And lots of guns are really expensive. Mm -hmm. They shouldn't have to spend a lot of money on a gun that's ultimately been determined to be prohibited um, and have to just return that to the government through some buyback program where they're not getting the full value for what they purchased. So I can see why the government did this, is to give those people who just want to amass a pile of, of weapons for no good reason uh, the opportunity to keep the things that they bought. And the reality is that most people who aren't participating in the buyback program are probably also going to be still using their firearms in some capacity, uh, whether it's you know shooting out in the woods when nobody's around or whether it's showing it off to, uh, to their you know gun enthusiast friends. Mm-hmm. I don't expect that people will be following the letter of the law to the T here. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't expect that either. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot in here. I'm not a gun guy, so I'm not necessarily the, the biggest, um, you know, on, on either side of this. I, I just think it's um, interesting that the government is going to allow people to keep things that are essentially useless. And like you mentioned, I guess it's just to appease those who are a little bit more vocal. And of course, you know, the pro-gun community is is quite vocal. So it'll be interesting to see how this rolls out. But I do believe that um, bylaw officers should not be the ones enforcing gun laws. But anyways, let's move on here, Kyla. I'm here with Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. Uh, Another topic we wanted to talk about was the idea of potentially being unknowingly intoxicated or involuntary intoxication in the cases of a, um, you know, uh, uh, driving under the influence charge or an IRP. Uh, How often does this happen? I saw you tweeting about it here not too long ago. I think it was on the weekend where you were talking, kind of asking people their their opinions on this. Um, Does this happen very often? Like, obviously it happens. And I imagine it's a very difficult situation for the person who is on the other side who has been driving and and didn't realize they were impaired, but uh, ended up getting a charge. Uh, Have you how many have you had to deal with some of these types of cases in the past? 
I have had to deal with these types of cases, and they happen in sort of three circumstances. The first is situations where people uh, consume alcohol that they don't realize has been spiked. Um, so, you know, people who are given the date rape drug, things mm-hmm. like that. Um, that comes up, unfortunately, a, a good deal of the time. There's also situations where people are prescribed medication. Uh, they follow all of the um, protocols in taking the medication, and they have some type of an unusual adverse reaction to the medication that causes intoxication. We see a ton of cases in the United States every year with people who are intoxicated by Ambien and who are essentially sleep driving. And this is considered to be a form of involuntary intoxication. And the third one that's starting to become more common is people who are taking drugs, um, which in doses that they don't believe would impair them, especially people who are using uh, using narcotics and people who are using cocaine, where they don't believe that they would be impaired based on their tolerance, but the drugs are laced with fentanyl, causing them to have an overdose while they're driving. This has been increasing significantly. And um, is that something that... Uh I guess, falls under this? I mean, if, if, like you mentioned, someone, say, was, was doing a party drug, they were doing some cocaine, and it was laced with fentanyl, is that actually an argument that can be used to try to get them out of that situation? I mean, arguably, you could make the pitch. It would be very difficult to succeed. And and sort of the feedback that I got when I posed the question on, on Twitter to, to the lawyers on there was that, you know, generally speaking, if you're using an intoxicating drug that you know or ought to know has a chance that it's laced with fentanyl as we've all learned (laughs) most Mm -hmm. illicit drugs are these days um you're essentially voluntarily assuming that risk um and if you get behind the wheel and drive at that point then that's on you fair enough um but when someone like like you mentioned if they are you know roofied essentially in a bar and they ended up driving home um i guess do you have to go and get like a toxicology report? Do you need a blood test? And do you have to do that in a certain amount of time? And you're probably not in a state of mind to be dealing with any of that kind of stuff. Like how difficult is that situation if someone, you know, were to, un, you know, God forbid, end up in that kind of a position? It's incredibly difficult. Uh, the, you know, one of the reasons that the GHB is so popular for this reason is that it's almost undetectable in a blood or urine sample very shortly after it's been consumed. So you have to catch it effectively at the same time uh, that it's affecting you. Um, And most people who are pulled over and investigated for alcohol-impaired driving are investigated in a situation where their blood is not being taken. It's usually a breath sample. So Mm -hmm. that evidence just never exists. Um, which means that the evidence has to come from other sources, whether it's footage at a bar, receipts, statements from people that were with the individual, you can prove it, but it's very difficult to do. Yeah, I guess you would hope if you're in that kind of a situation that the police officer who is, you know, pulling you over and and, and issuing a ticket will be able to recognize the signs that, hey, this person probably was not um, aware of what they were on. I mean, is that kind of how you would see this too is you would just kind of hope that police have enough training to identify a person who finds himself in that type of a position I mean, that is the hope, but uh, unfortunately, police aren't trained to distinguish between the effects of alcohol and the effects of people who've consumed some alcohol in combination with other intoxicating substances. It requires specific training protocols for officers to receive that, and very few officers in Canada have that mm-hmm. training. So the most, uh, the majority of officers that are going to be encountering people at the roadside aren't going to be able to distinguish between those things. Well, hopefully no one finds themselves in that position. Kyla, as always, thank you so much for the time. Always appreciate you coming on the show and providing some great insight, and we'll do it again next week. 
Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Acumen Law is Kyla Lee.